So good morning, listeners, and welcome to Come and See Inspirations, and this the 3rd of October, the 27th Sunday in Ordinary Time. My name is John Keeley, and help me to present the programming in this morning, Shane Ambrose. Good morning to you, Shane. Good morning, John. How are we keeping? Good. And you know, I had to slow down a little bit there when I said the 3rd of October. Wow, the year has flown, hasn't it? It's all of a sudden we're into this lovely month of October, actually. It's a changeable time of the year. Um, but anyway, just to welcome again our listeners who are housebound, lonely and struggling in some way. And especially our listeners, and those of our listeners, and most of them do what I'm sure they do, uh, support us in prayer each week. Our programme includes um, chat on faith topics, inspirational music, reflecting on the Sunday Gospel. And all of our programmes can be heard at comeandseeinspirations.bushbread.com. As I said before, just Google Come and See Inspirations and you'll find us there. And also on Spotify, iTunes and Facebook page. We're on Facebook at Come and See Inspirations. We can be contacted and please do so if you've got any comments um, or, or suggestion maybe for, for the programme. To uh, you can text us on 87 That's 087-6088-667. I assume if you're outside of Ireland, Shane, it's zero zero three five three eight seven six zero eight eight six six seven. Or email us at come and And at this part of the program, as usual, we invite Shane to share some saints for the week. Thanks, Shane. Right, so before I jump into the calendar this week, just a couple of things to bring to people's attention. They might remember a couple of weeks ago, we had a gentleman on from Wichita in the United States of America talking, talking about a potential new saint, a guy called Emil Capone. And uh, Emil is, he was a priest that died in Korea during the Korean War. And he's now a servant of God, so his his cause is progressing in terms of the the, the steps towards canonization with the Holy Church. And actually, on Wednesday the 29th, just Wednesday just gone, September the 29th, his remains were formally brought home to Wichita and were put into a grave or a a, a grave in the cathedral um, there. Uh, and there was a, uh, 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 yeah, at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception of Wichita. So they were found, they were identified by a whole bunch of other remains, and they were actually in a mass grave in the soldier's graveyard in Honolulu in Hawaii. So they were identified through DNA testing and all the rest of it. And uh, so he, it was, they were, the remains were brought back uh, to this week. So they arrived back. So that was just an interesting update on that particular story. I tell you that that guy's getting very close to the program. He's getting a few mentions. So we'll have to keep. So we'll just keep, we'll keep an eye on that one and see where it goes. Um, Also, there is, uh, let's see, what else do we have? So in terms of the calendar this week, so. Today is the, as John said, it is the 3rd of October, uh, where's the year going, and it is the 27th Sunday in Ordinary Time. For those of us praying the Psalter, we're on week three. Um, one, today would be the feast day of Blessed Columba Marmion. He's one of the Irish saints whose cause is pending, associated in particular with the Benedictines and in particular with Winstall. His feast day is not celebrated today because the Sunday takes precedence. Monday, the 4th of October, is the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi. The Provello of Assisi died in 1226, abandoned all things for the love of Christ, 
founded the Friars Minor, who we more affectionately know as the Franciscans. Now, there's a couple of branches of the Franciscans, actually, the Franciscan family. You have the conventional Franciscans, you have the Friars Minor, and, of course, you have the Capuchins. They're all part of the Franciscan global family. And, of course, with St. Clair, he founded the Poor Clares. Um, of course, one of the great things, of course, with St. Francis is, as a saint, very much in terms of embracing poverty. And for the last two years of his life, of course, also by, he suffered the stigmata, which is the wounds of Christ. Now, as we said on the program last week, as we were talking about Padre Pio, um, Padre Pio was the first priest to receive the stigmata. Uh, Francis was only ever ordained deacon. He wasn't a priest, which is an interesting one as well. Of course, very famous, he is the patron saint of ecologists and ecology and very much associated with the environment. And of course, that means that Monday is the last day of the season of creation for this year. So it draws to an end on Monday. Tuesday then is the feast day of Saint Faustina. So for those with the devotion to the divine mercy, it'll be a big red letter day for them, big feast day. Faustina, I am not even going to try to pronounce her surname or the town where she was born. I'll just tell you it's in Poland. And she was born in 1905. She died in Krakow in 1938. Quite short. She was only 33 when she died. Her short life, uh, she was a sister of Our Lady of Mercy. That was the religious congregation that she belonged to. And, of course, she is famous as the seer of the Divine Mercy, which is, of course, very much recounted in the diaries of St. Faustina. Faustina. Uh, one of the things, of course, associated with the devotion to the Divine Mercy is that for many years it was prohibited, both by the Polish bishops and then by Rome, until such time as a son of Poland was elected to the See of St. Peter, i.e. John Paul II, where the case was re-examined and eventually it was allowed both the devotion and, of course, the canonization of St. Faustina. So that's what we celebrate on Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, the 6th of October, we have the feast day of Bruno, St. Bruno. Now, Bruno uh, is a man from Cologne, he was born in 1033, he died in 1101, famous because he is the founder of the Cartusians at La Grande Cruz. Now, John, if you're talking about, if you're looking at comparisons of religious orders, and you look at them in terms of strictness and, and kind of devotion to the job, yeah, these guys are the Marine Corps, they're like like ooh, kind of territory right uh you know these guys are out there the there's I, there isn't that many chateaus grand uh, uh chapter houses around the world it's quite a small congregation in some respects i think it's about 70 they have it's extremely strict they live as hermits within the monastery so each of them has their own little tigeen as we'd say in irish a lot all little small little house and they only come together for certain times of the day so it's a quite a very strict, um, and if people might remember a couple of years ago, there was um, a film on it, um, on, oh, the, on, on the life in the Great Chateaus. It was Integrate Silence. It was a 2005 documentary directed by Philip Groning. And I remember going to see it in Dublin at the, I think it was the IFI I went to, and there's no, there's no dialogue. It's a yeah. two and a half hour film and there is no dialogue. Lovely. And it was it was a religious experience to watch it. If anyone gets, if you wanted to see it, I would highly recommend it. So anyway, that's Bruno. So his feast day is on Wednesday the 6th. And um, he was also, you know, as well as being the founder of the Cartusians, he was also a theologian. He was a professor of theology in Rems. And as I said, you know, very much community focuses on manual work, silence and worship. Um, so they would be the, 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 the things associated with it. So 
Thursday, then, the uh, 7th of October, is uh, the feast day of Our Lady of the Rosary. Now, it's Our Lady of the Rosary or Our Lady of Victories or Our Lady of Lepanto. So this is very much dedicated uh, to... Well, obviously, October is the month of the Rosary. Um and obviously the promote of the rose of the promotion of the rosary and very much of course associated um particularly say for example with the dominicans and the carmelites now the two of them just so that you know they have an argument about which of them actually was given the rosary by our lady holy mother church has decided that silence is the better uh, end of valor on this <laughs> and they will leave it to the holy to our lady herself to decide it when they get to heaven okay so anyway both congregations promote the devotion to the rosary in particular the dominicans in particular do as well now uh our lady of the rosary as a feast day as i was said it was formerly known as our lady of victory or um and and the feast of the holy rosary and it was celebrating the anniversary of the victory of the fleet of the holy league of 1571 over the Ottoman Navy at the Battle of Lepanto. Now, obviously, in the modern age, it's not really appropriate for us to be celebrating things kind of like that anymore. Um, but basically, um, it was combined with the feast day of, of the Rosary. And, um, because, and one of the reasons why that victory was supposed to have been achieved through the dedication of Our Lady of the Rosary. The state. Okay, yeah. Mm. And it was an important... It was an important... Um, I suppose in its historical context, the battle, the battle of Lepanto was in, was a um, was an important thing because it stopped the progress of the Ottoman Empire into Europe. So from that point of view, um, you know, it preserved Europe as we know it. So from a historic point of view, it's, it's quite important in that regard. So that's Our Lady of the Rosary. So it's 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 moved around the calendar. It's changed its name about six hundred times. So anyway, at the moment, it's sitting on the seventh of October. So then, um, Friday the eighth of October is the feast day. Now I had to go rooting for this one. So I went for a small little saint in England, and her name is Kina K E Y N A. She was a fifth century anchoress in Cornwall, where there's a church dedicated to her. And we celebrate her feast day on the 8th of October. This year as well, the 8th of October also happens to be Children's Day of Mission Prayer. So this is where the Society of Missionary Children, which is one of the societies which deals with the promotion of missions, and as October is also the month of the missions. Mm -hmm. So the, the 8th of October is one of those days where children are encouraged to share whatever they can to help with the material needs of their brothers and sisters and it's 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 children helping children in faith is, is what it is so that's also celebrated this year on the 8th of october then the 9th of september oh, sorry the 9th of october that's saturday next week it's the feast day of saint well there's a couple of feasts there's saint dennis and companions and they are french saints and were basically um beheaded and thrown in the Seine around 258 and led, later buried among Mount. The famous thing about St. Denis is the Basilica of St. Denis was the cathedral or the basilica in France where the kings, the royalty of France, were buried until the revolution, um, the Fr French Revolution in 1795. And he is the first bishop of Paris and is one of the patron, principal patrons of France as well. Then, as well as that, it's also the feast day of St. John Henry Newman on the Irish calendar. Now, John Henry Newman, of course, we have a particular, um, I won't say we have devotion, but we have a particular grow for the man on this program. We've mentioned him quite a bit. 
So he was beatified by Benedict XVI in Birmingham in 2010, and he was canonized in October 2019. So the memorial or his feast day is the 9th of October, which is actually the anniversary of his reception into the Catholic Church. And obviously, um, the church in Ireland is very much um, connected with John Henry Newman. There's even a limerick connection somewhere along the way. I can't remember what it is right now, but there is a limerick connection. Um, he was very much involved with the establishment of the Catholic University in Ireland, which is now the, which was the predecessor to what is now UCD, uh, although it wasn't quite a success at the time. Um, very much, um, Henry, John Henry Newman is very renowned for his writings, and in particular, um, you know, the, the, the books that he has written over, that were famous right down to the present day. Uh, he was obviously born Church of England and converted, and so that you know, he's, it's it's also an ecumenical. Um, what would you say? It's an ecumenical feast day as well, John. But also, you know, very much involved with the Oxford movement, uh, which was the the reform movement within the Church of England to bring back its what we would regard as more Catholic practices, um, and very much involved with that. So he converted to Catholicism and obviously then also went to join the Oratory, the, the, the Society of St. Philip Neri. Um, very much, he was involved actually with the, the First Vatican Council and very much involved then in terms of uh, defending the faith, what was called apologetics in the UK. Um, he was crazy a cardinal in 18... By, by 1879. He was elevated in 1879 by Pope Leo XIII, and then he died in 1890. He was 90 years of age in Birmingham. Um, so as I said, very much renowned for his writings, his, his, his books that he's written, and also his um, uh, defense of, 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 of Catholic teaching. So in particular, there was uh, the idea of a university, which is one of his great contributions to education and in particular to Catholic education. There's the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which is his religious autobiography published in 1865. Uh, also, there was the famous letter to the Duke of Norfolk in 1875, which defended, the, which was in defense of informed conscience in matters of faith very famous letter which he, he wrote as well and which we have referred to a number of times on the program and in particular a couple of years ago when we did an interview with Bishop Donald Murray on the issue of having an informed conscience. Um, so it was a famous book and it's called The Letter to the Duke of Norfolk. So that's John Henry Newman. So his feast day is on the 9th of October. So that's what we have, John, in terms of the calendar for this week. Um, yeah. The Pope's intentions to come around this particular time, don't they, at the beginning of the month? Yes, I uh, talked with them last week, but the Pope's intentions okay. for October are, we pray that every baptised person may be engaged in evangelization, available to the mission by being witness of a life that has the flavour of the gospel. It's a nice expression. Our lives have a flavour of the gospel. I like that one, Shane. Shane, thanks a lot for that. Very comprehensive as usual. One other thing, John, just in terms of the calendar for this week, actually is today is also or happens to be the day for life 2021. 
And the message is the Good Samaritan, a model of, or the, 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 the theme rather, is a good, the Good Samaritan, a model of compassion. So the Day for Life is celebrated annually by the Catholic Church in Ireland, England, Scotland and Wales. And it's a day dedicated to raising awareness of the meaning and the value of human life at every stage and in every condition. So as, as the expression goes, it's from conception to natural death. And this year, the Day for Life will be celebrated, it's been celebrated today, the 3rd of October. And the, I suppose it's very much focusing this year on the attempts that are currently being undertaken both in Ireland and the UK to legalize euthanasia. And um, now, as it's, it, that process has been paused in Ireland, as the legislation has been, questions have been raised about the legislation, but it was a narrow enough escape. However, in the UK, the drumbeats of death are still very loud and calling for it to be introduced there, assisted suicide. Um, during the week, there was, or I think it's next week, there's another bill being introduced to the House of Lords to start the process there again for the UK. So, um, so very much the message of the Day for Life invites Catholics to consider a more positive and compassionate response to the care of people who are in the final stages of life. And very much draws on the resources from the Vatican document Samaritanus Bonus on the care of persons in the critical and terminal phases of life, where Jesus gives us the image of the Good Samaritan as the model for our compassion and our solidarity with those who find themselves vulnerable and who fear being abandoned in their final illness. The Good Samaritan is one who crosses over, who binds up wounds, and who, most of important of all, stays with the person for as long as is required. So if people want to see, there's, uh, the, there's, there's a lot of resources on the, um, the website of the Bishop's Conference, um, and which are there for the particular day that's in it. And it's something that uh, we might come back to again on the programme at another stage. At this part of the programme, we usually pray a spirit of communion prayer. And in more recent times, myself and Shane have had a chat in regard to maybe changing this prayer space around a little bit in terms of maybe bringing other prayers, for want of a better word, um, to our listeners each week, followed by maybe a piece of music that might be uh, just a reflective piece of music to help us to, to take in whatever our, our, our prayer is. This particular week, we've taken... Um, it's actually it's a faith uh, cast recording from the Irish Bishops Conference, and it's a prayer uh, entitled "A Prayer for Our Earth," and it's taken from the Laudati Si, the 2015 encyclical uh, letter from Pope Francis on the care of our common home. And because this is the season of creation, as Shane mentioned to us, uh, that finishes off officially on the fourth of October, um, we thought maybe it might be appropriate to, to pray this prayer this morning. And this is going to be followed by a piece of inspir inst instrumental music by John Michael Talbot entitled Come to the Quiet. So I hope you enjoy this. Take some time to, to reflect on, on, on what's been prayed with us. And come back and join us again in part two. And Shane will introduce that as we come back. So join us again in part two. A prayer for our earth. All-powerful God, you are present in the whole universe and in the smallest of your creatures. You embrace with your tenderness all that exists. Pour out upon us the power of your love, that we may protect life and beauty. Fill us with peace, that we may live as brothers and sisters, harming no one. O God of the poor, help us to rescue the abandoned and forgotten of this earth, so precious in your eyes. Bring healing to our lives, 
that we may protect the world and not prey on it, that we may sow beauty, not pollution and destruction. Touch the hearts of those who look only for gain, at the expense of the poor and the earth. Teach us to discover the worth of each thing, to be filled with awe and contemplation, to recognise that we are profoundly united with every creature as we journey towards your infinite light. We thank you for being with us each day. Encourage us, we pray, in our struggle for justice, love and peace. Amen.
And welcome back to part two uh, here for our Come and See Inspirations podcast. My name is Shane Amber. I'm delighted you're joining us again this week on the podcast. Myself and John, always welcome to, uh, delighted to have you aboard and welcome you aboard, as they say. Now, for this week's podcast, part two, we are actually kind of delving partially into the archive. So two weeks ago, the 19th of September, um, across the Diocese of Limerick, there was a letter read out in churches from Bishop Brendan Leahy. And it was very much talking about changes taking shape around greater lay involvement as the church emerges. Now, we're hoping to have an interview with Bishop Brendan in the next couple of weeks, just in relation to that letter, which spoke about um, very much uh, lay pastoral ministry and the leadership program that's currently on the diocese. It also gave the good news about um, numbers of people in the diocese that have joined religious congregations or going forward with the priesthood. Um, there was three women and two men from the Diocese of Joint Religious Orders. And there was also the bishop's decision to start the process to initiate preparations for the institution of the permanent diaconate in the Diocese of Limerick. Now, this was following on from a decision made in the Diocesan Senate, which was held in 2016. So as part of that, myself and John said, hang on, we've already looked at this topic somewhere along the way. So this week we are rebroadcasting an interview we did originally broadcast back in the June 2012 with, as he was then, uh, uh, Reverend uh, Brother uh, Martin Brown, who is a monk of Glenstall Abbey. And at the time, Martin was a permanent deacon for the Abbey. Now, things have subsequently changed in terms of that, uh, his situation. He's now Father Martin Brown, which was unusual, but that's another day's discussion. But Martin, we had an interview with Martin, who takes us through what is the diaconate, what is the permanent diaconate, and what is its role and place in the history and the understanding of the church's ministry. And it's just, it's an interesting, it's one of those interviews. A couple, listeners might remember a couple of weeks back, it was the weekend of around the 8th of June, we were discussing the fact that in Dublin Archdiocese, uh, Archbishop Jim Martin had ordained eight men to what was being called, what was called the permanent diaconate. And at the time, we said we'd come back and we'd discuss it, but of course, we've had the whole excitement of Congress since. So this week, we're joined by Brother Martin Brown. Martin is a monk of Glenstall Abbey. He also happens to be the headmaster of the school for the boys. And he also happens to be a permanent deacon. Even a morning, Martin, and welcome to the programme. Hello, Shane and John. Nice to be with you both. Good morning, Martin. Now, people might be wondering why the voice is familiar, because uh, for those of our listeners who were watching the Mass from Pent- from, for Pentecost from Glenstall Abbey, mm-hmm. uh, they might recognise Martin's voice, because Martin was the deacon that read the Gospel and preached at us. Martin... Guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> now, Martin, you, uh, you're a monk of Glenstall. How long have you been in Glenstall? Uh, I joined the community in September uh, 2001, so right. um, nearly 11 years here now. Wow, 11 years. And you also happen to be what's called a permanent deacon. Indeed. Now, people are going to ask, what is a permanent deacon? <laughs> and we're kind of hoping that you're going to be able to give us some insight to it. On the I'll, I'll do my, my, my level best. Mm. Um, well, the de- first thing I suppose is, what is a deacon? What is a deacon? Well, well a deacon is a, is a minister of the church. Uh, he's an ordained minister of the church. Um, Anybody who would have been looking at either of the broadcast masses during the Eucharistic Congress at, at either end would have seen that there were uh, two men on either side of the of the main celebrant at each mass uh, who were vested slightly differently. Uh, well, that's because they were deacons. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so deacons uh, initially were assistants to the apostles. If you look at the Acts of the Apostles in, I think, chapter 6, the apostles were uh, needed some help in feeding the widows and orphans, and so they laid hands on seven men, uh, and these men are, are seen as the first deacons. So they were... Uh, uh, so since then, uh, assistance to the to the apostles uh, becomes sort of assistance to the bishops. So they're very close link with the bishop always. Um, but there are day ministers of the church. Um, the word deacon comes from the Greek uh, diakonos or diakonos. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, uh, which is the Greek word for for servant. And so the the deacon is uh, an ordained servant in, in, to, to, to some extent. That's not to say that uh, priests or bishops aren't servants too. Uh, <laughs> they clearly are supposed to be, uh, as indeed as any baptized Christian in, uh, in many ways. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the deacon is a, a sort of a, a public expression of the servant nature of the church, uh, would be uh, one way of describing who a deacon is. It's very easy to get sort of caught up in what, what a deacon does or what a deacon can and can't do. Mm. But uh, who or what a deacon is... Uh, is a slightly more complex question to answer, and uh, that gives some sense of what a deacon uh, is supposed to be. Right. And in terms of, you know, the, this, this thing, permanent deacon, what, what's, what's the permanent bit about it, I suppose? Right. Um, you mightn't, or not everyone might realize it, but uh, every priest uh, who is ordained priest uh, is ordained deacon probably about a year or so before his ordained priest. Uh, and so for a long part of the, uh, many centuries of the Church's history, uh, deacons and the, the diaconate uh, were seen merely as a sort of a stepping, stepping stone. You were ordained deacon and then you were ordained priest shortly afterwards, sometimes very shortly afterwards. Uh, in, in the current day and age, it's normally about a year. Uh, and so to a lot of people, uh, if they happen to be in a parish where a, de- where a deacon served for, a, for a, uh, a couple of weeks, maybe as part of a placement from seminary, they would have seen deacons as almost uh, apprentice priests. Uh, or half-baked priests. <laughs> the patron saint, one of the patron saints of deacons, one of the early deacons of the church, Saint Lawrence, uh, who was who was uh, martyred by being cooked on a griddle, and he's oh, alleged yeah. to have uh, said to his uh, tormentors um, at one point, "I'm done on this side, turn me over." Uh, well, some people think that a, a de- uh, and he was a deacon. Some people tend to think that uh, the deacons are, are priests who have been only cooked on one side, and they need to be cooked on the other side to make them, make them into priests. So, uh, in the history of the Church in Ireland, the only kind of deacons that we have seen until recently have been those kind of deacons, uh, guys who are preparing to be ordained priests and uh, serve as deacon for a year or so. So obviously, of course, the, the important thing, of course, to, to, to bring across is the fact that even though different terms are used between permanent and transitional deacons, it's all deacons. They're all the same deacons. A deacon is a deacon is a deacon. There's only one way of ordaining a deacon. Right. Uh, the, the, the right isn't any different. So obviously permanent means permanent. So a permanent deacon is somebody who uh, chooses or is chosen uh, to remain a deacon. Uh, and so has no plans or is not, it is not envisaged that he will uh, in time become a priest. So... Uh, that, that's that's what's distinctive. In fact, uh, some in some parts of the world, in some other denominations, I know the Church of England refers to the distinctive diaconate, which might be a better better way of describing it. Uh, so the people who are who are de- deacons as deacons, not as not as uh, not on, as, as, on as a step on the on a step on the way. Yeah. It just it's it, it's interesting now that you, of course, as a monk, obviously uh, the issue of getting married never doesn't arise for you as such. But can permanent deacons get married? Because it was something I suppose that a lot of people were curious mm. about. Well, you have to be very careful how you answer that question. <laughs> right. Deacons can't get married or may not get married, but married men may become deacons. 
Okay. Ah, okay. okay. Uh, so now, so you can I spell that out a little bit, a little bit more clearly? Um, uh, obviously, those who are to be ordained priests um, in, in the current discipline of the Latin Church uh, must commit to celibacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone like me, who's already in religious vows as a monk, um, is already vowed to celibacy, so the question doesn't arise, as, as you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so the, these people who were ordained by Archbishop Martin in Dublin uh, a few weeks ago, um, I think most of them, I think seven out of the eight, I think, somebody told me, uh, are married. So married men may be ordained deacon. And in practice, most permanent deacons in the world are married men. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned about most deacons in the world. Like, this is something that has become very popular since the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. Um, we're a little bit uh, late and a little bit breathless in Ireland uh, catching up. Uh, but the, the fact is that the Second Vatican Council, way back in the 1960s, uh, decreed in its constitution on the church, uh, document Lumen Gentium, that the diaconate was to be restored as a permanent order of ministry in the church. Um, 40 years, 50 years later, we're catching up. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so, so, so shortly after that, the church began uh, regulating how, how that should happen. Uh, and Rome produced a kind of a, a directory, a, a set of instructions on, on how deacons should be formed and so forth. But it was left up to each country, to the, to the bishop's conference in each country, to decide if and when it would introduce the permanent diaconate. So if anybody who has been uh, visiting America has been in Par- and gone to Mass in America, they'd be very used to, uh, to, to deacons being, being uh, present. There, could be ten, there are tens of thousands of deacons in America. Most, most of the deacons in the world are in the United, are, are in the United States. There are deacons in most uh, English dioceses, but I think maybe not all. And it was only in 2006 that the Irish bishops decided uh, to publish its, their directory and norms uh, for the permanent diaconate. So it was only in 2006 that they uh, indicated they were going to introduce permanent deacons, and it obviously took a few, year, few years uh, then for, for programs to be set up, for training to be set up. And so what we saw two weeks ago in Dublin uh, was the first batch of, of men ordained according to that, uh, as a result of that decision in 2006. But yes, there are lots and tens of thousands of deacons around the world but they're uh, still considered, uh, well, not considered, they are uh, quite a rare thing in Ireland. But just to get back to what I was saying there uh, a moment ago about married men may be ordained deacons, uh, but deacons may not marry. Uh, once you're ordained, uh, you may not marry. And indeed, uh, a married deacon who, who becomes widowed uh, may not remarry. All right. Yes, okay, I had that. Um, and even a, permanent, a, a man who is being ordained deacon, um, as a permanent deacon, but is not married at the time of ordination, he must take the, the, the promise of celibacy then too. So well, it, w- once you're ordained, uh, the, the uh, possibility of, of uh, getting married uh, d- doesn't exist for the person anymore. Martin, can I ask you something? Yeah. Why did you decide just to stay, I don't mean that for, uh, facetiously, I know what you mean. why did you choose to become a permanent deacon rather than, than, than continue on to priesthood? Well, there were, there were several reasons. Some... Um, very personal and, and mm-hmm. some okay. uh, kind of practical. I'll try, I'll try and share some of them mm-hmm. with you. Um, one, I had always been just intrigued by the idea that this, this had been restored by the Vatican Council, one of the great uh, moments of reform and renewal in the Church, mm-hmm. but it uh, hadn't happened in Ireland. Um, and one of the... It, it, because some people do tend to see deacons as sort of, as I say, uh, I, was, I was being a little bit sarcastic, but mm. about kind of half-baked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because a lot of people do see deacons that way, 
uh, they're often seen in, in, in some places as, as a sort of a response to the shortage of clergy of priests. Yes. Uh, and like if it, that's, that is why I, I presume the Irish bishops took so long to approve the, the permanent diaconate, which I find, I think, is, is to be regretted. Yes. That the, the council thought that the diaconate is distinctive in its own right. It has something particular to do. Yes. It, it embodies something particularly in itself, independent of whatever functions or roles it can do. But because uh, the Irish bishops chose not to introduce uh, the permanent diaconate, uh, un- until we got to the stage where lots and lots of parishes were being either merged or clustered and, or not having resident priests, yeah. it does begin to. It, it, it looks a bit like they are meant, they are being seen and used purely for their function uh, as sort of replacements, as the next best thing to a priest. And uh, I, I wanted to to see, and because there's no shortage of priests in this monastery, thanks be to God, <laughs> uh, um, I, I wanted to see what a de- what a deacon can be. And what a deacon can embody when he isn't just running around covering jobs that there aren't enough priests to do, okay. if, you know, if you get me. So that was part of it. A uh, second part of it was a very personal thing in that um, I, I spent a number of years studying uh, theology uh, in England, in Durham. Uh, and I was studying in a, uh, I spent some time actually in a seminary for Evangelical Church of England and Evangelical Methodist student ministers. Um, and obviously the whole question of being able to share the Eucharist with other Christians uh, is, a, is a very fraught one. Uh, we, we are, we're not able to do that. Uh, and I felt that my, in, in studying alongside people who are training for ministry, uh, the, the ministry of the Word, a deacon who proclaims the Gospel and preaches mm. but doesn't celebrate the Eucharist, um, that ministry sat more easily for me uh, in, 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 in my own personal context of, of having... Uh, lived and studied and prayed alongside uh, training ministers from other from other churches, but being unable uh, to, uh, to, uh, to to celebrate the Eucharist together. So it, the idea of having the, the moment of the ceremony where the, where the bishop hands you the book of the Gospels, yes. that's easier for me to digest in myself than it is for him to be handing me the chalice and paten, uh, because the. Uh, the, the way the, the level of division between the churches at the moment, I didn't feel particularly drawn to be the one who presides at the Eucharist. Now, obviously, somebody has to, and it's not that I'm fasting mm-hmm. the Eucharist or anything like that. Uh, but just personally, I found it easier to get my head around being a minister of the church who doesn't celebrate the Eucharist. Could I follow that through, please? And thank you for sharing that. Could I follow that through by asking you, if if you so decided, could you be ordained a priest or are you permanent deacon? That's it. Um, it's Sorry, not entirely clear. There, there'd be uh, ways around it. <laughs> uh, obviously, someone in, 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 my, in my situation who is uh, who is already committed to celibacy and doesn't yes, have a wife yes. and, and children, yeah. uh, it might be a little bit simpler if if that were to be decided at some point in the future. But it's the the, the way the church has set up uh, the structures around the permanent diaconate. It doesn't envisage that. That, that sort of a thing is, is meant to be exceptional. Okay. Uh, it's, it's not meant to be kind of a keeping your options open and seeing do you feel like it's a couple of years. I accept that. Thanks for <laughs> that. Matthew, going back to what you were saying about uh, you know deacon being service, I suppose people will say, well, what does you know? And I, although we're trying not to bound by, I suppose, the job or the task, mm. but I suppose people will be saying, well, what does a deacon actually do? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a very reasonable question, as I, and as I say. I, I react a little bit against an, an overemphasis on it, but obviously yeah. it's a question that needs yeah. to be asked because, yes, people need to know what a deacon does. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, as I say, the deacon is a minister of... of he's ordained to service uh, and to charity, 
uh, and as a minister of the word. So uh, the deacon, whenever a deacon is present at Mass, it is the deacon who, who, who proclaims the gospel. Mm. Um, he may preach if he's so designated to do so by the, uh, by, by the priest or the, or the bishop. Um, deacon celebrates some sacraments, but that's, I think that's, that's actually a relatively modern uh, innovation. Deacons in the Eastern churches wouldn't, for instance, carry out baptisms or perform weddings. Uh, Catholic deacons may and do quite often, and in a lot, a lot of parishes, again, in the States, uh, a lot of the baptisms would be done by the deacon. Um, the deacon might do part of the funeral ceremony, might, might do the re- reception of remains the night before, and then the priest celebrate the funeral mass. So, so deacons, they, they proclaim and preach the gospel. They assist at the altar. As I say, there was always two deacons beside the, beside the bishop uh, at those uh, liturgies we saw on the television um, mm-hmm. the last two weekends. Um, they assist at the altar. Uh, they distribute Holy Communion. Now, obviously, that's not particularly remarkable nowadays, and there's lots of people distribute Holy Communion. Um, and that's actually one of the things um, that is a little bit of a paradox, and that some people could say, well, what can you do that a, that a, mm. a, layman, a layman can't do? And in some senses, there's very, there's very little. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was saying a lot of it is actually about who the person is or, or, or what it means to be a deacon rather than what one can do. Mm. Um, I have something here in front of me that I, I actually had printed in the booklet the day of my ordination. Um, and it's from a homily preached, believe it or not, by Church of England Bishop way back in 1977 at the ordination of Rowan Williams, the current Archbishop of Canterbury. When mm-hmm. Rowan Williams was being ordained deacon, uh, again, a transitional deacon on the way to being a priest, uh, the bishop who ordained him, uh, as part of his homily, this, this, these few lines were part of his homily, and I think they're very powerful. Uh, he says, the deacon is one who waits. He's never in charge. He is the servant of others, of God, of his bishop, and of the congregation. He is a voice. It is his task to read the Lord's gospel, not his own. He is a servant. It is his task to wait at the Lord's table. It is others who preside. He is the waiter. The <coughs> is there anything at all that is peculiar to the deacon? Is he given powers that are given to no one else? The answer is no. There's nothing he can do which nobody else can do. But that is just what's distinctive about him. He has no power. He is a servant. He's entrusted with the ministry of Christ who washes his servant's feet. He embodies the service of the Lord who has made himself the servant of us all. So I think, I think that's a mm. very uh, that's accurate and, and yes, quite, quite moving uh, vision of what a, de- a deacon is. Because if you ask, what can you do that, that nobody else can do? Well, the answer is nothing. Uh, if there are no deacons at Mass, the priest, the priest will, will read the Gospel. If there are no deacons at Mass, there are lots of lay people who will help with the distribution of Holy Communion. Um, a lay person could just as easily uh, lead a wake service in the church when the, when the body is being uh, received. So, so there's very few things that couldn't be done by somebody else. Uh, and that's why I think it's important that the deacon is, is seen, not so much as what he can do, but who he is in the context of the way, that, the way our church sees itself, which is uh, all these, uh, our church is a church of local churches, uh, each centred around the bishop, with his deacons, his priests, his people. Uh, so it's not so much what can the deacon do, is it? What, what can the bishop, deacon, priests, and people do together? Uh, would be kind of my slightly more rhetorical answer to the question. But uh, the practical one is yes, uh, preaching, uh, baptizing, uh, marrying, um, 
uh, and then le- leading pe- people in prayer. Uh, the deacon is often... The deacon at Mass will often give kind of the instructions. He will give the dismissal at the end. He will uh, he'll invite people to give the sign of peace. Now, they're very obviously very ritual things. They're just kind of a moment. But they also evoke another part of what is meant to be the deacon's role, which is sort of to, to animate the liturgy, to kind of help, help people enter into the liturgy. So it's not just a ceremonial role of being the person who kind of shouts out, go in peace. Uh, but, but, but those little ritual things are reflections of part of the true ministry of the deacon, which is to be somewhere between, almost between the, pe- the people and the priest, uh, drawing the people uh, to the altar and bringing the altar to the people. Uh, so, it, it, because of our his- the history of the church, it, it got kind of shriveled up to being something that was done by men for a couple of months on their way to the priesthood, uh, and with, with very small little kind of ritual moments where they kind of, they, okay, they read the gospel and they, and they said, said the dismissal, but they, they didn't do a whole lot else. And so the, the 40 or 50 years since the diaconate has been restored have been a sort of a time of discovery, trying to, trying to figure out, and there's an enormous literature, and I have quite a lot, quite a lot of it here in my shelves, uh, as to what the, what the diaconate is and what it means and what deacons should and shouldn't be doing and uh, how they should and shouldn't be behaving. And it, it hasn't been fixed yet. Uh, there's still a lot of contention and looseness around it. Um, because okay, forty, fifty years might seem like an awfully long time, but in, in but like dog years, church, church, in church years, that's not very long at all. No, 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 of course. And so again, our thanks to to which is now Father Martin Brown and Shane for bringing us that very interesting uh, conversation. Going back again, as Shane said in two thousand and twelve, we actually got a lot of response, even through the blog on that. Uh, people picked it up and was so interested in, in finding out the bits and pieces that they wanted to on the permanent diaconate. So now we'll go out with our final, sorry, with our second piece of music following that interview. Maybe this is an ideal one. It's from uh, a song by Paul Gurr, and this one is entitled Come As You Are. So join us again in part three of the programme where we read and reflect on the Word of God. Come as you are, that's how I want as you are, feel quite at home, close to my heart, loved and forgiven. Come as you are, why stand alone? Each time you fail 
So welcome back again to the third part of Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley, still joined by Shane Ambrose. And again, thanks, Shane, for bringing us that information uh, on the saints early on, but also uh, for inviting uh, Martin Martin Brown, Father Martin Brown, to join us and give us that, that wonderful insight into his thoughts on the permanent diaconate. But now this part of the program is to read and reflect on the Word of God, the Sunday Gospel. And before that, Shane usually prays a prayer before reading and reflecting on Scripture. Thanks, Shane. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your Word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this Word reverently and attentively and humbly. May we not despise this Word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your Word. Send your spirit to us so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it. Then let our eyes be closed and our minds wander, but may we give ourselves entirely to this listening. We ask this, Father, in union with Mary, who used to recite the Psalms through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for that, Shane. So the Gospel for today, for the 27th Sunday in Ordinary Time, is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse uh, 2 to 16. Some Pharisees approached Jesus and asked, Is it against the law for a man to divorce his wife? They were testing him. He answered them, What did Moses command you? Moses allowed us, they said, to draw up a writ of dismissal and so to divorce. Then Jesus said to them, It was because you were so unteachable that he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This is why a man must leave father and mother, and the two become one body. They are no longer two, therefore, but one body. So then, what God has reunited, man must not divide. Back in the house, the disciples questioned him again about this, and he said to them, 
The man who divorces his wife and marries another is guilty of adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she is guilty of adultery too. People were bringing little children to him for him to touch them. The disciples turned them away. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. I tell you solemnly, any one of you who does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Then he put his arms around them, laid his hands on them, and gave them his blessing. So that's the gospel for today, Sunday the 27th, uh, Sunday in ordinary time. Shane, would you like to offer a little few thoughts on that, please? Uh, what would you say, John, if I said no? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, yes, so this week's gospel, um, okay, two things that struck me about it. The first part of the gospel is very much focused around, I suppose, marriage and the understanding of marriage, which out of which has formed what we call the sacramental theology of the church and the position the church takes in relation to sacraments. To be honest, I didn't dwell overly too much on it when I was doing my lecture this week. Um, it, was, it wasn't a piece of scripture that spoke to me this week. That happens when you're doing your lexio. You read and reflect on scripture and you see what way scripture speaks to you. However, one thought that does strike me this Sunday for our listeners on the podcast is listening to that Sunday gospel rather than getting down into the complexities of marriage and sacrament of marriage and all the rest of it that goes with us. For those that are married, this Sunday I would pose the question to you. Have you turned around to your partner and told her you love them? Simple as. Remind yourselves, remind yourselves why you made your vows all those years ago. So, <laughs> so the part, this, the, the gospel, the little bit that um, the, 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 the gospel piece that struck me was that encounter at the end where Jesus is encountering the children. Now, um, it's interesting, uh, the, the, the different translations that are used, it's, you know, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. Uh, but the disciples rebuked them is another translation that's there. Um, I've also come across a translation where it said that it was, they came to Jesus to came, gave them his blessing, which is another way of, of, of looking, uh, looking at it, which I thought was quite um, a nice way of translating that particular section as well. Um, but also, of course, the, the important thing, of course, there is very much that whole section about he said, let the little ones come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never interest. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands in them and blessed them. And there's quite a lot there, I think, for me, in terms of unpacking and reflecting on for this particular Sunday. Truly, I say to you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. It's an important phrase for us to think about. You know, John and myself, we've been doing this program, is it 11 years, John? 12 years? 11 years? Say 13. Go on in anyway. Yeah, whichever it is. We've been doing it a while. And over the, over the time, of course, listeners will know, both myself and John, we've picked up our, our knowledge and we've done a bit of study on scripture. And we've done our Lexio Divina and all the rest of it. 
And sometimes the danger when you do any bit of formal study like that is there's a risk of becoming ossified with encountering scripture again and again. And it's this particular pericope, this particular section from the gospel, I always have to remind myself about when we're doing Lexio and to be careful about what we do when we're reflecting on Lexio, because it reminds us that our faith is not supposed to be caught up in obtuse terms or complexities of theology. You know, our, you know how, many, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? But is supposed to be a childlike enthusiasm for encountering the divine. Now, I used my words very deliberately there. I said childlike enthusiasm, not childish. And that's one of the big challenges that we face in the world today, because you would have people turn around and say that to have faith, to believe in, um, to believe in God, to profess a belief in Christ and the understanding of the incarnation, the death and resurrection, the salvation for the world um, is being childish. That, you know, in the modern world, there's no place for God. In the modern world, there's no place for religion. And I would say, well, actually, they're wrong because human beings are spiritual beings. It's something which is hard-coded into our very DNA that we constantly and always seek the divine. That we are, like, you know, you just look around in the modern world, the amount of people that are looking at meditation apps, that are trying to do mindfulness, that are trying to do things to, you know, get away from it all and turn off. And it very much is echoing that whole thing that St. Augustine wrote about nearly, I don't know, 1,500 years ago, Lord, our souls, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. That whole sense of longing for the divine that's in each of us. And our what can sometimes stop us encountering that divine is the fact that we're too grown up. We're too cynical. We're too tired of the world. We're too caught up in our own heads. And this Sunday's gospel for me is a reminder to us that we must guard against that from time to time. That we, like some of the best theologians I have ever met in my life were under the age of seven. Uh, there was, I've, I'm a cousin of mine, uh, he's two daughters. And I can remember, I can remember as children, I'd be getting text messages from his mother and their mother and father kind of going, Shane, how do we answer this question? You know, it'd be kind of, you know, they'd be the most obtuse theological, you know, ponderings that would have turned St. Thomas Aquinas cross-eyed trying to figure it out and explain it to a child. But it was the fact that they had this innate awareness of God in the world. And that's something that we seem to lose as we get older. You know, we get so, we move from the heart to the head. And, you know, this week we're celebrating the feast of, of John. We're going to be celebrating the feast day of John Henry Newman. And, of course, his, his, his motto as a cardinal was heart speaking to heart, quorum or quorum. And that whole thing, the encounter with the divine is heart speaking to heart. And for me, this Sunday's gospel is very much that's what the reminder is. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. 
And it's like, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And it's a reminder to us as well that we do not necessarily hold the keys to the kingdom. It links back to what we were doing, I think it was two Sundays ago, in terms of our awareness and our openness to that which is different. Uh, in terms of how the divine can speak to people in their daily lives, that some of the most ethical people I have come across in my work might be some of the most deeply atheist individuals I have ever met. But that does not take away from the fact that they are good people. Mm. And it's something that we have to be conscious of and be aware of, um, doesn't mean we stand back and not defend ourselves in our corner when it comes to being aware of our faith but it's something that we should be conscious of but also open like a child to meeting new people to encountering people again and very much i suppose as we are coming out of covid and as we are kind of trying to pick up the pieces of what's going to happen in the next couple of months as we try to figure out what the whole new world is going to look like probably why we're freezing our backsides off, given things that have been going on lately, but, you know, we live in hope. You know, the challenge for us there this Sunday morning is very much to be like children with our encounter with the divine and our openness to the wonder of the world. And as you look out the window this morning, you know, don't be looking at the cars passing by or wondering what the neighbours are doing. How about we look to the sky or you look to the garden and see where is the encounter with the divine that's there for you today. And almost like a child, see what's in the clouds above this Sunday morning. Shane, thank you so much indeed for that. Very good. I must agree with Shane that, you know, um, we would have done this gospel a number of times. And as Father Frank, um, uh, I, I read really at Lecture Divina, certainly my aid anyway, in uh, reflecting on the Sunday Gospels. I always used to say to us, you know, that whenever you pick up the Sunday Gospel, you'll always pick up something different than what you did before. Again, like Shane this morning, maybe for a different reason, uh, I didn't go through the first, I didn't pay too much attention to the first part either, because again, I was just listening to the Spirit. I was open, just wondering what the Holy Spirit was going to give me. But certainly that second part of the Gospel, the optional part of the Gospel, uh, really spoke to me this morning. Um, I was drawn by the fact that even that opening that opening set that opening sentence, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to touch them. What a beautiful thing to do, you know. And we all have that option from time to time and that chance sometimes to bring little children to Jesus for him to touch them, allowing the innocence of children to be touched and loved by Jesus. Jesus being the source of all kindness and love and gentleness is just what children would be comfortable with. They wouldn't be afraid of going to Jesus as a stranger because he's God, he's full of love, full of kindness. And the question, I suppose, this week uh, would be for us all, I suppose, to reflect on. Do we as parents or grandparents or uncles and aunts, do we bring children from within our own families with our own field of meeting up and so on and so forth, do we bring these children to Jesus to be loved by him and allowing him to bless them? We've got plenty of opportunity from time to time. It just might be little pieces, of pieces as Shane said, it just been my little pieces of, of creation that's out there 
the children might, might, be, might teach us, you know, look what, what a beautiful piece of creation that is. Look at that lovely bird or, or whatever it is. There's our chance, you know, to mention, well, do you know something? God had a part in play, but God actually created that. Jesus had a part in that. Maybe this week we could bring this gift to little children. I'll just finish off with a piece that I picked up by uh, my, um, my friend Michael Devatai this week. And he said, Lord, when we were young, we said foolish things or expressed ourselves awkwardly. And most adults dismissed us. Today we remember with gratitude the one person who welcomed us, as Jesus welcomed little children, and took us seriously, showing us that what we were saying was very, very important, and so gave us a blessing. So this week there's a lovely message there for for all of us, as Shane shared, and uh, I share myself, you know, to bring little children, and li- little children, you know, it can be not... As Shane said, maybe maybe small children, but that's very important. But also maybe people we know who wouldn't have up to now had, a, had an appreciation of what Jesus can do in their lives. Is that a chance maybe to just give them some little bit of an insight into what's available? Anyway, time for us to go. Um, thanks again, Shane, for Science for the Week, for the reflection. And also going back uh, nine years ago to uh, giving us Martin to reflect with us on the permanent diaconate. But now we'll go out with a final piece of music. This one, uh, what else can I do? We'll play a piece of music by Mary Dunn, and this one is entitled, Let the Little Children Come to Me. So next week, from Shane and myself, thanks again for joining us. We'll do it all again next week. Until then, bye now. Bye.
的。